0: Chapter three, and if you do not have your Bible, it'll be behind me. Hopefully on the screen. We'll see, Betsy. <laughs> we'll start. You have to do it the old way. Have to listen. Um, alrighty. So, First John three, verse one. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, if we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but what we know, that we, that when he appears, we shall be like him, because he shall, we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is. Is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who abide who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared, was to destroy the works of the devil. May God bless the reading of his word. So, as we can see, we're continuing on with 1 John, and at the end of last week, we recognized that John was starting to lead us into another direction in the letter. Um, after having spent some time Um, telling us of what Christ has done. Now we're going to start getting into what does that mean? What does it mean for us individually and corporately for Christ to have done what he has done through his propitiation um, and ultimately through his love? And that's where we start off today with verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it does not know him. John continues the letter with a recognition of the love of the Father. Of all the New Testament writers, John by far writes the most concerning about the love of God. In John's Gospel, for example, he mentions love approximately 44 times, and in 1 John alone, over 45 times. The next closest the term love is used is in Ephesians when it occurs 20 times. Some might find John's usage of love to be um, too repetitious. But when we consider the love of God in Christ, it should cause us unspeakable joy, and we need to be reminded of this love. So why should it cause this joy within us? Because through the love of God, we are called children of God. While most consider all people to be his children, uh, the truth is that that is not the case. Those who are in Christ Are children of God, not because of their status or their personal status, but because of the status of Christ as the Son of God. Therefore, anyone found in Christ is a child of God. It is through His love we have been born of God through Christ. John then continues by reflecting on the reason why there is such hostility against Christians. If God loves us, and if we can experience so much joy in Him, Then how is it that the world despises believers? The answer is the same concerning Christ. Just as the world did not know Jesus, and hence the Father, so it does not know those who belong to him. Because of this, though we might be in the light, uh, or though we might be light in the darkness, those who remain in the dark will continue to be hostile to those who are in the light. We then come to verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared but what we know that when he appears we shall be like him because he shall be because we shall be see him as he is i'm having trouble reading within the new testament there's a paradox or a tension of being there but not yet Um, This is also the case when it comes to us as Christians. In Christ, we are God's children here and now. As soon as we have come to Christ in repentance and faith, this occurs. However, we still haven't become all of what it is that God is bringing us toward. We are still part of the dust, and we still experience death and sorrow, and we still struggle against sin. Yet that is not all that there is. God does not adopt us as his children simply to leave us as things are. Instead, we recognize that there is a future hope in which we will become, um, in which it is further the image of Christ. This This future miracle is called glorification, when we will put on the glory of God through Jesus Christ. This is why John continues with this eschatological end times language by saying, We know that when he appears, we shall be like him. His appearance is what will cause this divine transformation to occur in us. The transformation will cause us to become like Christ in his glory. This, however, should not cause us to assume that until that time we can live however we want. Instead, it should urge us to continue to live according to Christ here and now, since we are already children of God by his love. It will be... When Christ comes and we see him as he is, we will further know the glory of Christ and actually partake of that glory. Then we come to verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This naturally leads us to what was already mentioned. If we are children of God by the love of God, then we cannot live however we want to. Instead, that love will stir in us "...produce a change in us, because we know our hope in Christ both now and in the future. Knowing that future will cause us to want to purify purify ourselves, because Christ himself is pure. This reminds us of the ethical call of the gospel. Though we are saved by grace through faith in Christ... Which is underscored by the love of God, we must never assume that the love of God will not begin its transformative power over us here and now. Instead, it is pivotal that we remember that the love of God should cause us to live for God in his glory, according to his word. The moment of salvation is when it begins now, verse four: everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness; sin is lawlessness. In antithesis, to those who hope and purify themselves are those who practice sinning. To sin in this capacity is a lifestyle, not falling into temptation. We see this with the way it is phrased, practice sinning. It implies a continued desire to sin and fulfill that desire through acting it out. For sin to be lawless is to remind us of the law itself. The law describes sin. It informs us of what sin is, whether it be lying, stealing, adultery, etc. To live a lifestyle of sin where one's life is predominantly defined by these sinful acts is to then live a lifestyle of lawlessness, which in turn causes one to fall outside of the scope of Christian conduct, of purity, and into impurity. Now verse 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. John gives us a reminder um, that the reason for Christ's appearing was that he would take away sins. This reflects the death of Jesus on the cross and the propitiation discussion found in chapter 2. There, we were reminded that Christ is our propitiation for sin, um, that it is he who takes away the guilt of sin. He is able to do this because he is sinless and because of his own righteousness. This, however, is not the only purpose of Jesus' coming. If Jesus has no sin, as John points out, then the logical conclusion is that John is not only focusing on the atonement aspect of Jesus' work and our guilt, but also the atonement of our whole lives. While we were sinners apart from Christ, through Him we can live in purification before God. In this way, Christ takes away our sins by anointing of the Holy Spirit, which causes us to live a different lifestyle from lawlessness, which is ultimately the antithesis of lawlessness, is purification. And Jesus is our example of a life of purity. Then we come to verse 6. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning, No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. John continues with the argument that none who abide in Christ keep on sinning. If verse 5 was meant to be an example of a wrongful, sinful lifestyle, actually that would be verse 4, then it is clear that John is reflecting on that here. Those who are in Christ will not continue to have their lives defined by sin. Their lifestyles will be transformed because of Jesus. If it is true that those who abide in Christ do not sin, then the converse must also be true. Those who keep living sinful lifestyles have not seen Jesus or known him. Um, The evidence is present in how they live, because their lives are in sin. Yet what does it mean to see him or to know him? To see him may represent the reality that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Because of darkness, one might not be able to see God or Christ, and it may cause an individual to not cling to Christ, and because of this, not live according to the will of God. To not know him reflects the importance of knowledge. While it may be true that knowledge isn't everything, there is in everything theres a very real sense in which certain knowledge is necessary for salvation. In this case, it reflects not knowing Jesus as the Christ. By not having this knowledge of Jesus, the individual will naturally continue to live in sin because they have no advocate who takes away their sins. Conversely, correct knowledge of Jesus can and will cause one to live apart from sin. Verse 7, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. John again gives us another endearing remark to the readers, calling them little children. Like a guardian who watches over their charge, John watches over those whom he is writing to in order to keep them from falling into deception. The deceivers were first mentioned at the end of chapter 2, and now John gives an imperative to the readers to not be deceived. Whether deception concerns false faith or ethics or relationally with love, John desires to keep them from these hazards. This leads John to directly focus on righteousness. Just as Christ is pure, and therefore those who are in him will purify themselves by living like him, so too Jesus is righteous, and those who are in him will practice righteousness. We practice righteousness then by living like Jesus, walking as he walked, and obeying his teachings, as well as the teachings of the apostles who learn directly from him. This is further established when we walk in step with the Spirit in our anointing, which we saw again at the end of chapter 2. Now our last verse, verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Again, antithetical to practicing righteousness is to practice sinning. Those who do practice sinning rather than practice righteousness show that they are not of Jesus, but instead of the devil. Just as Jesus is righteous from the beginning, the devil has been sinning from the beginning. So following the logic, those who sin are of the devil. This continues the dichotomy of John between, let's say, light and darkness, righteousness and sin, and now Christ and the devil. Ultimately, the fate of the devil is going to be the lake of fire. John desires that those who read his letter be warned of the consequences of living lifestyles of sin, as it reflects that they do not belong to Jesus, but instead they belong to the liar, the accuser, the tempter who was from the beginning and has continued his malice ever since. We then come to the reason the Son of God came, and that was to destroy the works of the devil. To destroy the works of the devil implies Jesus came to undo what the devil initiated. The first is the turning of humanity into sin. The devil, through temptation, led humanity into sin. Now that Christ has come, those who are in him can seek purification and righteousness instead of sin. Now the second thing that the devil brought is death. It was through the devil's temptation that same sin came, but it was also through sin that death came. Jesus comes to destroy the work by bringing eternal life, which has been promised to those who abide in him. The best place to consider Jesus' annihilation of the devil's work, I think, is found in the second chapter of Hebrews. And this is what the writer of Hebrews says. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery, and we can all say amen to that and thanks for the writer of Hebrews for that very profound thought this all leads us to the main point and the first three verses was meant to establish the love of God given to us by adopting us as his children and the ethical standard by which we are to identify with which is Jesus himself From this, John then establishes a dichotomy between those who identify with Christ in purification and righteousness and those who identify with the devil in sin and lawlessness. Ultimately, however, we have hope because though the devil is strong, Christ has conquered the devil and can undo all of his work. And that is something worthy of praise. Now this leads us to a few application points. The first is deception. In today's text, we have seen John again discuss those who would deceive. As a member of the human race, we can all say that we have been deceived in some way, whether it is some individual who has lied to us intentionally, or other individuals who have not lied intentionally, but regardless were not faithful to their commitments. Likewise, there are others who deceive either intentionally or unintentionally through teaching or preaching incorrect doctrines, and therefore encouraging incorrect lifestyles. Likewise, there is self-deception, which many of us face. Whether it is in some kind of ability or knowledge, it can come from the form of an illness. Those who would say over and over again that they are fine when in fact their bodies are telling them something completely different. This is a type of self-deception which people practice. Others practice self-deception by living in a way contrary to what they claim to believe. This can occur in different ways. Um, from the naturalist, who claims that nature is all that there is in one breath, and then lives as though there is metaphysical or purpose in the next. Or those who claim to follow Christ and will profess him as Lord, and then in the next instant sin without any remorse, living a sinful lifestyle, living in unrepentance. When we practice self-deception... Or when others deceive us, it should remind us of one who is the master deceiver, which is the devil. He was the first, after all, to deceive. He took the words of God and twisted them for his own purposes. I can't imagine anyone doing that today. He deceived humanity by taking what was true and turning it on its head. Again, something actually we do see quite often today. Is it so surprising when we consider that John warns against being deceived? Earlier, John correlated those who live in sinful lifestyles with living according to the devil. Is it so surprising that he would do so? It is even more significant when we consider that in this chapter, we have not generally looked at the world and its deceptions. Instead, we are seeing deceivers, those who claim to know Christ, but live in a different way from Christ. This is perhaps the greatest deception we can be given, and the greatest deception we can place on ourselves, that we are right with God, when in fact we are far from Him. How many individuals do we know who claim to be a follower of Christ, and yet their lifestyle is so far from Christ? And then the question is, how is it so easy for this kind of deception to occur? I would say that there is an answer to this. This world in which we live is, metaphorically, a desert. Like one who walks in a real desert, we often get distracted by mirages. These mirages can make even hell look like a paradise. So we chase after the mirages in hopes of attaining what is being presented to us, all the while walking farther and farther from the true oasis, which we can attain if we would only allow ourselves to be led. I think that this is the kind of warning John is giving us. We're all on this journey, and John is encouraging us to stay away from these mirages which the world, the devil, ourselves, place in front of us to follow. Whether it be drugs, sex, sinful lifestyles in general, false ideologies, false teachings, doctrines. The world knows us. We were born in it, after all. The devil knows us. He certainly knows how to deceive us. Um, And he will try to deceive us if he is able. Therefore, we need to hold firm to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to hold firm to the teachings of the scriptures. There are many things that could cause us to step off the path. Lifestyles which would give us finite pleasure, or doctrines which would allow us to live lifestyles we want, rather than the lifestyles of righteousness and purification found in Christ. These deceptions, these mirages can come to us in so many different ways. They are tempting to follow because they more often than not will give you an immediate gratification sensation. So be encouraged to not be deceived. Don't be misled into these things. Instead, seek and find and cling to the truth of Jesus Christ. He is the oasis in the desert of this life. It is through him we will find paradise we had lost. And by him we will see And no truth. This leads us to the second point I wanted to bring up. Today John informed us of something very significant. And that is what the love of God has done for us. And the question is, what has it done? Well, it has caused us to become children of God. To now be called children of God has ramifications when we consider it. And that is what John has been trying to show us so far in this chapter. But before we delve too deeply into this, let's consider something. What we notice when John recognizes those who are children of God is that they were not always children of God. This reminds us that while God is love, this does not mean that he loves everyone the same. And I brought this up before, but we need to re-look at it. Instead, we recognize that those who are in Christ are loved by the Father as the Father loves his Son. In other words, there is now a familial relationship Love which previously was not attained by us apart from Christ. This is why the statement by John is so significant today. Through the love of the Father we have become children of God. The Father sent Jesus Christ through his through us and through his son, we too become children of God. Again, this is why it is so significant for John to say it today, because once we were not children of God, and now we are. The theme of becoming children of God is not only found here in John. The Apostle Paul also writes about this in Galatians and Romans. Consider what he says. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come... God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were born, who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Here Paul recognizes that though we were children, we were originally slaves. And it was not until we became adopted through Jesus Christ that we became children of God. Once we have been adopted, however, we have been given the Spirit. And the Spirit testifies to our calling as children of God, inwardly urging us to call out to our Father. The same thing is said in Romans when Paul says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. But if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our Spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Again, we find the same theme of our adoption and the Spirit within us urging us to call out to our Father now that we have been adopted. What is the end goal for those who have been adopted? We have become heirs with Christ, heirs of an eternal kingdom. Like John, Paul warns us not to stray into sinful lifestyles, but to live according to the Spirit within us. Though we should have finite loss and suffering, the end result of living for the glory of God is that we would be glorified with Christ, and that is something infinite in scope. Clearly, the calling to be a child of God is high, It stretches far across all that there is and all that there will be. The encouragement for all of us is to reflect on what it means for you to be a son or daughter of God. To consider that God himself is in you, calling you, urging you closer to himself. That because of what Jesus has done, God no longer looks upon you as a child of sin and slavery, but as his own child. He is now our father. And being our Father, He will guide us purposefully into glory. So often it can be that we can easily mislead ourselves into thinking that the love of God for us is something small. Yet the truth is, it is something magnificent. What God has done within us has transformed our darkness into light. This miraculous event through Jesus, making us his children, leading us from death to life, giving us his own spirit, is a miracle on par with the creation of the universe, and it happens within each of us who belong to Christ. Do not consider your sonhood or your daughterhood something insignificant. It is the work of God within us, and he deserves all praise for what he has done. Praise God for our redemption and for our adoption. For though we were lost in our sin, God found us, gave us a home and an infinite inheritance. This is no small thing. It is a great thing which His love has done for all of those who were unworthy. This leads us to our third point, transform lives. Now comes the hard part. The real question is, can we know if we are children of God? Can we know if we have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel? The answer to this is thankfully yes. However, it is also causes us to ask another question, not if we can know whether we are children of God, but questioning, are you personally a child of God? This is a question we all, or many of us, I know I have, ask ourselves in some capacity at one point in time or another. And I do not necessarily believe it is a bad question to ask. With so many mirages in our views, it is very possible that we could be chasing a mirage rather than the truth. So when we ask ourselves this, it would be wise for us to consider where we can go in order to find the answer, because there are right places and there are wrong places to look. Simply put, we all or many of us want to ask each other whether or not we are children of God. The simple truth is, none of us knows each other's hearts. I cannot so easily peer into you and say, yes, you are definitely a a Christian or a child of God. I am not able to do this even with the greatest amount of wisdom and discernment I have. I can certainly conclude by your lifestyle if you are not. And I may be able to encourage you to continue in the lifestyle you are living. But that is as far as any of us are able to take it. Now some might think that this is a bad thing. But the truth is, it is actually a very good thing. We should not be desiring for our assurance from, from other individuals. I do not want to find my assurance of salvation from individuals who are less than perfect. No offense. Instead... I think you and I would agree that the best place for us to find our assurance is in the one who is perfect, who can know us fully. And the only one who is perfect and who knows us fully is our Creator. This is what we can give thanks for. That our Creator does know us fully, and He is the one who gives us our assurance. He gives us assurance in three ways. The first is with the Scriptures. They are inspired inerrant and fully sufficient in teaching us about who god is and who we are and how we are expected to live as his children if we are in christ this is a primary way in which we can find our assurance to seek out the scriptures and test our doctrines and our lifestyles against the word of god some will wonder why doctrines and lifestyles go together and the reason is that what we believe will more or less affect how we live Therefore, doctrines are just as important as lifestyles. To know correctly is just as important as living correctly. Thankfully, we can know our doctrines are sure if they coincide with the Scriptures. Likewise, the Scriptures can teach us how we are to live in light of the knowledge it provides us. John today recognizes both negatives and positives in today's text. Two positives are to live in purification, to purify ourselves, and to practice righteousness. Both of these cause us to look to Christ, by whom we are purified and through whom we are declared righteous. Likewise, we look at all of Scripture because it all points to Jesus and his gospel. The second way we can find our assurance, then, is directly from God through his Spirit. As we have seen, the Spirit urges us to call to our Father. Likewise, in Romans and Galatians, we are called to live according to the Spirit. We can live according to the Spirit because the Spirit has been given to us. The question we want to ask is, can we know that we have the right Spirit? The answer is yes, because of the Scriptures. What do the Scriptures inform us concerning what it is like to live according to the Spirit? We find in Galatians... Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Here we find two different kinds of lifestyles. One is in the flesh, and the other is in the Spirit. Those who live lifestyles of sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. In other words, sinful and lawless are outside of the kingdom of God. It is not that one might have all of these as a lifestyle, but even just one which overshadows the rest. We all know individuals who could fit and be defined by one if not more than these in the list. We have to be on guard against the flesh and the devil, which would deceive us into thinking that these kinds of lifestyles are right and good and acceptable. Yet what is acceptable? What is truly acceptable? And that is the Spirit who who indwells us, the Spirit who produces His fruit in us, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is the fruit which the Spirit within those in whom He dwells gives. We can know we have the right Spirit by our lives. Are are our lifestyles in the Spirit, or are they in the flesh? That's a question we have to ask. We have to ask ourselves, where do we fall? Which do you seek? The good fruit of the Spirit or the bad fruit of the flesh? Finally, the third way we can find our assurance is when we affirmatively, affirmatively answer the question, is God working in us? Is he working in me? Can we check ourselves in the desert and look back and see that God has taken us far and look forward to see where, Christ, or where God is taking us, which is into glory through his son Jesus Christ? Our lifestyles can be the evidence of our salvation, but only when we check them against the Scriptures and the Spirit, if they coincide with the Scriptures and the Spirit. Included in this list of lifestyle should be emphasized the greatest fruit, which is love. Are we living in love toward God, giving all of ourselves over to his will? Not just daily life, but all of our life—whether it be our businesses, our families, our marriages, our relationships, our finances, our work, etc.—to the lordship of Christ in love. Are we doing these things? Likewise, are we loving each other, forgiving each other as Christ loves us and forgives us? This is the great and miraculous thing about our lives if we are in Christ, and that is before Christ when we when this question could be asked if. If you are living a lifestyle according to the flesh, will you raise your hand? We would all raise our hands. Yet God, in his great and infinite grace and mercy, has done the miraculous in us by cleansing us of our sins, by sending us on Jesus Christ to not simply destroy, but to annihilate the works of the devil. Though we fall into sin as Christians, we can be sure that a Christian will not live in a lifestyle of sin, Sin will not define the Christian. We are not perfect by any means. We all know our own hearts well enough to know that this is the case. Yet we can be sure that if we are in Christ, God is leading us away from the dry desert and its mirages and toward a true oasis, the true oasis, which is Jesus. Likewise, we must make it plain that Christianity does not teach legalism It is not that you live or that you are living this lifestyle and it's causing you to become saved. Instead, it is the evidence of salvation within you. It is the assurance that you can have that you are saved when you live according to the Scriptures and step with the Spirit. John paints a picture without gray. We will either live in purification and righteousness, or we will live in sin and lawlessness. There is no middle ground. There is no questionable area for us to look at. So each of us must ask, am I a child of God according to this standard? Not the standard of men, but the standard of God. If you answer no, then be encouraged to seek out Jesus Christ. If you see your lifestyle is in sin, then go to God. Call out to Him. Seek Him in His Scriptures. Be encouraged to know that God is a personal God who has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, for people like you who are in your sin. You can know redemption through Him, and you can become pure through His forgiveness and through His cleansing blood. Seek Jesus. He is the truth, the life, and the light of the world. Though you feel you're not good enough, no, none are. We are all broken in sin, but through Him we become children of God. Hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and know the truth of God. Now if you answer yes to that question, be encouraged to continue placing each step in front of the other, knowing that in Christ you will reach the end goal, which is glorification and eternal life. Be encouraged to remember You are a child of God through Christ, no matter what this world says. This means that you are an heir of an eternal kingdom, no matter what this world says. And you have the full love of God given to you, no matter what the world, the devil, or yourself says. Continue to live in this love, knowing the grace and peace of our God, now and forever. In all of this, we consider the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is through the teaching and preaching of the gospel that the love of God is poured out on us, and we become his children. It is through the proclamation of the gospel that God makes himself known to us, transforming us from sinfulness to godliness. It is through the gospel that we are brought from death to life. The Gospel begins with our origins. All things were created by the power of god 's Word. Last of all, He created humanity to be His image bearers. because God is a God of love, reason, knows, can be known, has personhood, morality, and displays Hessod. We can as well. It is from it is because of being made in His image. we find sanctity, dignity, and worth to human life. Yet, like God, we are also able to choose. We could either choose to follow God in obedience into life or follow the deceiver, sin, into disobedience and death. We chose the latter, and we have continued to choose this ever since. Because of this, our relationships with God, ourselves, each other, and the world are broken. Because of our sin, we continue to accrue a greater and greater moral guilt before our God every day. Not a feeling of guilt, but true guilt before a true judge. At this point, Christianity seems dark, and yet it is in this darkness that God spoke his word and sent his light, which is his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived, died, and rose again in time, space, history, and flesh. Because of his life, death, and resurrection, we become children of God. Through his life, we learn how to live in righteousness and purification. Through his death, we are cleansed of all of our sin and all of our guilt through his blood, and made righteous before God. Through his resurrection, we too will be raised into glory. By him, our relationships are being restored, and in his victory over life in life over death, we have victory in life over death, defeating the works of the devil. All that is required of us is obedience in two things. The first is repentance. We are to repent of our sins. We are to turn away from our sins and turn toward God. We are to live lifestyles which glorify God according to the scriptures. We are to walk as Jesus walked and walk in step with his spirit in love for our Father in heaven and love for each other. The second is faith in Christ. We must recognize our total dependence upon the Son of God for our salvation. It is not what we do which saves us. It is what Jesus has done. We recognize that He is the Lord of all, and we are to follow Him with all of our lives. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the Scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. For those who remain disobedient, there is only condemnation. None can stand before God our judge with only their deeds in hand. For even our best deeds are as filthy rags before a holy and righteous God, according to the prophets. Therefore, any standing apart from Christ before God will find only condemnation for their sins, judgment for their disobedience. Yet, for those who are obedient, there is no longer condemnation. Though they were once in darkness and death, those who are in Christ find light and life. They are given the Spirit of God, which helps them stand firm against the darkness of sin, the devil, and the world. They have victory in life. They become children of God and co-heirs of an eternal kingdom, knowing the peace of God forevermore. My encouragement to you is that you would hear the gospel and be transformed by its power that you would not be deceived by mirages in the desert, but that you would know the truth of Jesus Christ and the oasis which he leads, that we would all stand firm against the darkness of sin and the devil and not not be discouraged, but be encouraged by the grace of Jesus Christ who saves us from our sins. Give everything over to him, follow him, and know the love of God for his children. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you for all that you have done. We thank you for your spirit with, which is within us. We thank you for the outpouring of all of your love which overflows all of us and once it overflows spreads across all of our lives. We thank you, Lord, for what you have done through your son Jesus Christ who continues to redeem us, who completely annihilates the works of the devil. So that in the end, we can live for you, not in sin, but in purification, in righteousness. And that in the end, we would have eternal life through your Son, Jesus Christ. Keep us going on the road, Lord. Don't let us fall off the path. Keep your children as you have promised to do. And let us never take our gaze off of where it is that you are leading us. We thank you again, in your Son's name. Amen. Amen. Please rise as we